Hi there, and welcome to episode 13 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Larson, and with me on the West Coast is... Cricket Lou. And for today's episode, uh, the first time in this podcast history, we have a special guest, Dwayne Wessels. Welcome, Dwayne. Hello, everyone. And Dwayne's actually in the room with me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Dwayne? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm here and uh, sitting with Matt today because this week I actually started working with Matt at VeriSign, uh, working on uh, DNSSEC and some other projects. Um, prior to uh, this job, I was working for DNS OARC um, out of my home in, in Idaho and uh, working on various uh, research projects there and hope to be sort of doing some of the same things here at VeriSign. You know, it would probably be worth saying something about DNSOARC to our thousands of listeners because it's, it's uh, probably very relevant to everybody listening to this podcast. So uh, DNSOARC is uh, short for the, the DNS Operations Analysis and Research Center. This is a nonprofit organization started about uh, five years ago to bring DNS operators, researchers, and others together in a forum where they can share information with each other and um, learn from each other. OARC hosts semi-annual workshops and meetings. OARC develops cool tools that its members and even the public can use to diagnose uh, common problems or um, other things that may be of detriment to the internet. And um, if anyone out there happens to be interested in, in ORC membership, we encourage you to go to the website, which is www.dns-oarc.net. Yeah, ORC is, really, is really filling a void because before ORC, there really was no place for just DNS people to gather for operational exchange, um, you know, I mean, there's there's Nanog, but that's really more for ISPs and for down lower in the protocol stack, you know, at the routing level. But but from a DNS perspective, until until OARC, there really wasn't a place. Yeah, I mean, people tended to to use the bind users mailing list for that sort of thing, <laughs> uh, in lieu of a, a better forum. And now there is the DNS operations mailing list, which sort of uh, takes some of that load away, I guess. Yeah, DNS dash operations at dns-oarc.net, I guess. Lots of so, dashes. Lots of dashes, yeah. All right. Well, let's answer some questions. We're going we're gonna to try for three questions tonight. That's one question per person on the podcast. Dwayne, do you want to read the first question as our guest? Oh, I'll do my best. Doesn't he have to uh, pull it out of the mailbag? I forgot the mailbag. Yes. Okay. We. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, I've just opened the mailbag for Dwayne to read from. Oh, there's the mailbag. There <laughs> it is. Okay. Uh, the first question is from Christoph Klutner, uh, who says, Dear Mr. DNS, today I found a question which Google couldn't answer. My God. I, I'm wondering how one can create an IPv6-only domain. If I understand correctly, this is, it is not allowed to have an NS record point to a host name with only quad A records. Is this correct? Does the authoritative name server for a zone need to have an IPv4 address? 
All right. Well, speaking of the DNS operations mailing list, this very topic just came up, what, two weeks ago, thereabouts? I think it I think it came up two weeks ago, but I, I think it was a follow-up from actually yeah, quite a while ago. Uh, you're thinking of the, the thread about uh, gtld.biz? Is it G or is it? J. I think it's J. Yeah, yeah j.gtld.biz. Well, that, that sort of answers this question because that host name, which is one of the name servers for .us, though it ends in .biz, it's actually a .us authoritative server, and it indeed has only a quad A record. There is no A record for j.gtld.biz. Right. And the reason that it came up on the list was because somebody, uh, somebody scripts expected there to be a quad A record there and, and found that, that there was indeed not. Or an NA record, you mean, I think. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So probably, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's probably no, um, no problem with having one of your name servers that only has a quad A record, but you certainly wouldn't want to have all of your name servers have only quad A records at this point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Given the state of IPv6 adoption. Yeah. Do, do we want to speculate on why uh, Newstar, the registry that runs that name server, why they might have done done that, had just a quad A and, and no A record? I mean, certainly that that is by far the exception. That's the only one of those that I know of. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have a theory? I have a theory. <laughs> I think they just wanted to show that they could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume that's why you were asking. <laughs> that would be my best theory, too, just, just as sort of a proof of concept to, to prove to themselves and maybe others that it indeed works. Just, just any theories from you, Cricket? Just to show that it works. Hmm. Well, I think you know one of the things that I had I had guessed at was that maybe they'd wanted to keep uh, the IPv6 name server separate from the IPv4 name server um, because, for example, there are some there are some things in DNS that uh, get recorded or cached at the granularity of a name server. For example, if a name name server is marked lame. Don't, wouldn't you do that for the entire name server and, and you know, potentially cast out both a quad a, quad a and a record for, for a name server if it were uh, found to be lame? Yeah, you would, indeed. So you could... You could I, well, at least, th that's probably not in the specs, but that's how I'd write it. Yeah. Right. So you would assume that, yeah, you would assume that both addresses are on the same box. Right. Or the same process. Yeah. Yeah, if they were if they were uh, A and quad A records for the same domain name, you know, you would you might say, oh well, if one is lame, the other ought to be lame too. Yeah, IPv6 does raise some interesting new ways to make your life complicated. In that, you could have the same name server, or I should say, the same name server name. One physical box could be running. IPv4 and another physical box in a completely different location could be running IPv6, and you could have both of those records associated with the same domain name. It's kind of weird, but you could do it. Right, right. And with Anycast, it gets even trickier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can have that situation with a single IP address. <laughs> yeah. All right, I sense we're reaching the point of diminishing returns for, uh, for this particular question. I think we need to declare it answered. Okay. All right, so our next question is from a guy named Rick Andrews. He's actually a VeriSign employee out in Mountain View, 
and he and I were having an email conversation uh, about this topic, and I remember that uh, after a little bit of back and forth, I said, you know, you should send this question to Mr. DNS, and he did. And Wow. I can't remember why I suggested that, but I think, Cricket, the, the only reason must be that I wanted your opinion. I see. It wasn't, wasn't because you didn't know the answer. It was well, because... I, I gave him a provisional answer and said, you know, maybe you need to see if Mr. DNS knows better. So, All right. So I don't need to read the question uh, exactly. It's, it's pretty easy to sum up. Uh, what we were talking about was uh, he observed that there are certain applications and resolver libraries, in fact, I think most of them do what I'm about to describe, uh, where you can pass them either an IP address or a domain name, and they figure out uh, which is which. If it's an IP address, they just pass it on through, uh, and if it's a domain name, they cause a DS look, DNS lookup to happen, uh, and then the IP address gets passed on through. And right, it, so so ping does that, for example, right. uh, or or dig or telnet or almost anything that accepts a, uh, an IP address as an argument, right. and you don't have to signal it. You don't have to say you know dash i for IP address. Right, and presumably they're all just calling git host by name with that exact argument. Mm -hmm. um, and so he observed that well, an IP address is actually a syntactically correct domain name. You know, you could have a domain name that is one dot two dot three dot four. Right, where the labels, the first label is one and the second is two, and it's certainly perfectly legal, always, would always have uh, four labels, I suppose. Right, and he wondered, well, you know, can I have such a domain name that looks like an IP address? And, and my answer was, well, maybe in a private network, if you really wanted to have .4 as a top-level domain in your, you know, some sort of internal root environment. But uh, I said, you know, re realistically, I don't know if that's going to work. Uh, so that's that's pretty much the question. How does uh, how does code that does this? How does it decide whether it's looking at an IP address or a domain name when IP addresses are syntactically valid domain names? Right, and, and I think my answer to that is that IP addresses are sort of a, a strict subset of legal domain names. Right, they have to have four labels. Each of those labels has to be. Um, a decimal quantity between zero and 255. So these programs probably, uh, or, or the libraries that the programs call, look at that and they say, well, is this syntactically an IP address? And if it is syntactically an IP address, they assume that uh, it's an IP address. If it's not syntactically an IP address, but it is legal syntax for a domain name, then they assume it's a domain name. Does that sound right? It does. Uh, on the other hand, from some of the research that I've done, uh, we know for sure that there are programs and applications that do not get this right, and uh, they in fact will issue queries for names that are IP addresses. And right. In right. some of the uh, papers that we've written, we call these A for A queries, because the query type is is A, and the the query name is an IPv4 address. And yeah, if my memory is correct, it's uh, when we looked at uh, packets from the root servers, this was something like 2 to 3% of all the queries that we saw. Right, right. That's remarkable. That's uh, a lot of misbehaving clients out there on the Internet. Absolutely. I remember that paper. Is, is, is that called, wow, that's a lot of packets? Is that I, the name of that I paper? Think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think at the time, it, it, well, to me it was a lot of packets anyway, but um, yeah, yeah. That, that is one of the papers that, that talks about this. Yeah, that that same paper, I remember reading that and being really fascinated by the the results. That's the one that you wrote with uh, Casey Claffey and Evie Nemeth, right? 
I, definitely Casey. I don't. I don't know if Emmy actually Evie actually got her name on that paper, but uh, yeah, that that same okay. group. Yeah. But you found that that there was some absolutely startling percentage of traffic that was received by by the root name server you were analyzing. Something like. Uh, you know, 98% of it was basically junk, right? It was queries like the ones you described and, and other sort of useless queries. Yeah, so the upshot of that paper was that, in, in fact, uh, something only like 2% of uh, the queries that we saw uh, had any uh, legitimate reason to be there. Uh, the, the biggest category of uh, our junk queries turned out to be repeated queries, which is to say the the query name was the same, the query type was the same, and the, uh, the client's source address was the same. I think that was something like 50% uh, of all the queries. Wow. You know, I wow. can absolutely believe that because when we look at the .com and .net authoritative name servers, we see very similar traffic. Uh, we see an awful lot of packets that come in that are just clearly duplicate repeated queries. In fact, so many that we've decided to instrument our uh, bespoke monitoring software to display those so we can see how many at a given time. And it's a significant percentage of the total query load. So Rick's question makes me uh, think of another question, which, which is um, in, in IPv6, they don't use dots, right? They use colons. And is this one of the reasons why? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know either. <laughs> um, I suppose hmm. there would be some advantages to having an IP address syntactically discrete from uh, a host name, domain name. Yeah. M maybe I, we'll have I, to come up with so. a new category in our research, uh, A for quad A <laughs> query type or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And can you come up with a, a, a domain name that's actually a syntactically legal IPv6 address? You know, the infamous dead beef domain name. A challenge for your, re your listeners, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, shall we go on and talk about uh, the next question? Sure. So our third question comes from Reiner Dufner, and he writes, Hi, Mr. DNS. Recently, I changed the IP of a server and watched the access log, mainly for my own hits while testing it. To my surprise, no more than five minutes after I had changed the records with a TTL of one day, the Googlebot came visiting and spidered some pages. So what he's saying is that Google came along and indexed some of his uh, web server's content. Is that a coincidence? Can Google get notified by my name server about changes in a zone? I saw the behavior once before when we had a server under attack. After changing the, IP, uh, the IPs, it took only a couple of minutes for the attackers to change their target. But in that case, I can imagine the attacker querying the DNS constantly for that particular zone. But Google can't possibly do that, right? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? That's an excellent question. Yeah. I, I think that, that the, the first part of our answer ought to be that um, his authoritative name servers don't tell Google's name servers uh, anything. They, they don't really have any mechanism for notifying uh, Google's recursive name servers of a change to the IP address of his web server. I think we can agree on that, right? Agreed. Although I think some people would like that, like to have that functionality. Right, right. And in fact, I. I remember that uh, uh, UltraDNS has started doing something similar to that. They have a, a new service where they're using um, Amazon's EC squared or EC2 service to um, sort of publish a list of domain names and record types that they've changed on their authoritative name servers. And providers of recursive name service 
uh, can subscribe to those changes and then automatically invalidate those records out of their caches if they're able to do that. Interesting. Yeah. Open. Well, how would you how oh, would you do that though? How would you do that? Yeah, I mean, it, well, not if you're running bind, right? There's no hooks into bind to do that. Yeah, there's RNDC flush. Oh, you could just script it and do a flush on a domain by domain You could. It's, it's kind of hacky, but you could RNDC flush, and you can flush a given uh, domain name. I, th I don't know that you can, you can get a specific RR set, but you can flush all of the records attached to a particular domain name. Hmm. So was it coincidence then that uh, Google happened to come along and, and uh, index his web server? Uh, you know, was he just towards the very, very end of his one-day TTL, or, or is there something larger afoot? I think, a co I think coincidence is a possibility, but um, the conspiracy theory side of me uh, thinks of something like the Google toolbar. Perhaps, uh, perhaps in his browser, while, while he switched over his IP address, he was um, you know, browsing to a site, and if he has something like Google toolbar installed, maybe... Uh, that sent something back to to their headquarters to to say that hey there's this name on this address maybe you should index it sometime yeah or maybe the Google Street View car was driving by and noticed it, <laughs> noticed that he was typing oh yeah a new feature of their cameras yeah oh it'd be like Cal it'd be like Cal in 2001 instead of reading his lips it it, it looked at his fingers to see what keys he was typing <laughs> <laughs> I remember that I remember that Hal was reading the reading was it Kier Delay's lips or was it somebody else I, Bo I don't both even remember. Of them. David Bowman and Frank Poole were climbed into the pod. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I suppose they would have had, had to have somebody to talk to rather than just yeah, be muttering to right. themselves. Yeah. So interesting. So you think it, was, it, it could have been the Google toolbar sending back intelligence to the Google mothership? I, I don't know how Google toolbar works, but I, uh, you know, I figure it's there f for some reason to collect some kind of information, and, and you know, this may be one of those cases yeah what about what about don't be evil <laughs> i guess unless it's, it's helpful yeah that's right that's right i mean this is noticing a change to an ip address before uh the the cache data times out you could argue that's that's helpful yeah. well i was actually being sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah so have we have we ever been able to establish uh, the orbit of the google mothership can we look for a, a solar flash or something when it's uh, at the right in the right position? Oh, I know what you're I know what you're talking about it because I know what you've been reading recently. Yeah, yeah. I, f I, f I finished Anathem recently. Uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe a week or two weeks ago, and now I'm I'm just kind of stunned after I've after I finished uh, the book. It's you know eight or nine hundred pages long, and uh, I was working on it for a good long time. <laughs> Yeah, we should say this is by Neil Stevenson, one of my favorite science fiction authors ever. Yes, and mine, mine too, coincidentally. Is it like you don't know what to do with your free time now, Cricket? Well, yeah, you know, after after finishing up something like that, I, I imagine it's it's like um, finishing up any any big project, uh, that, which which sounds kind of pathetic because my big project is reading a long book. But you know, you, you sort of feel like, well, what? What do I do next? What do I do? I start another big book? Do I read a short book? Do I watch a movie? What have you? So, yeah, but it was an excellent book, and you read it too, right, Matt? I did. I I really liked it. I mean, but I I tend to to like all this stuff. Um, it it definitely it takes a little patience, you know. It's on on this uh, planet that's like Earth but not Earth, and 
there are all these made-up words, not a lot of made-up words, but some and, and different historical figures that, you know, so you kind of have to sort of keep it, keep this translation table in your head of, oh, yeah, this thing in anathem means this thing in the real world. But I think it's worth it to, for the book. Yeah, yeah, I, I found it really entertaining. And I was I was really impressed at the way that Stevenson was able to come up with, you know, new words for things that were not the same as, but sort of hearkened to, you know, related English words. The etymology you could imagine was, was uh, plausible. And you could sort of trace the etymology, even, even like the, you know, the, the titles of the people who live in the, the consent, right? The fras and the sirs. Well, you know, fras sort of like, uh, sort of like friar, sort of like the fra and fraternity, sort of like brother, and sir is kind of like you know sorority or or sister. Yes, and there's sort of a reason that things are related. Yes, so interesting. You'll, just ha- you'll have to read the book to find out. Yeah. Is well, this a spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, do we have anything else to say <laughs> to fill up time? We're only at 23 minutes. We're much more efficient this time. I guess so. Well, uh, I think that's, uh, that's an honest podcast work. Three questions and a, a, a guest host, no less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure having you, Dwayne. And, and uh, welcome to VeriSign. I'm, I'm still a shareholder of, uh, of VeriSign, so I'm certainly very pleased to, to see you there. But we will miss you in your position at DNS OARC. That was great work that you did there as well. Well, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. It's, uh, and it's great to be on the podcast. All right. Well, as always, thank you all very much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to have you, and we do appreciate your questions. Uh, to submit a question, send email to MrDNS. That's mrdns at ask-mrdns.com, and we'll hope to hear from you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye.